I'm Josh, and uh, this is Dharma Punks NYC. If you'd like to support this podcast and the work I do as a Buddhist pastor, uh, you can always Venmo Dharma Punks NYC or the PayPal button on the website, dharmapunksnyc.com. That's about it. That's my pitch. So tonight we're talking about being with other people's emotions, helping other people process emotions, affects, helping people process difficult experiences, how to do it in a both beneficial way for them and a way that doesn't cause us too much entanglement or uh, taking on the emotions that someone else is struggling with. We'll talk about all that. We are biologically hardwired with what we could call innate responses. They're wired into us, known as affects. And affects are different than emotions. Affects are pretty universal in that all people have levels of arousal from relaxed all the way up to intense, freaked out, or the nervous system collapses in a freeze state. And we also have feelings, which range from being very relaxed and comfortable, pleasant, all the way to real discomfort, emotional pain. So these states of arousal and feelings are the raw constituents that eventually comprise emotions. But emotions are more than just affects, which are feelings and states of arousal. Emotions also have cognitive elements, perceptions and thoughts. Um, also, they're far more visible. They have cultural context. So in one culture, what might constitute anger in another culture might be interpreted, the same feelings might be interpreted as shock or frustration. So emotions vary from culture to culture because they have a large cognitive component. And that means not only are our cultural uh, uh, influences felt, but also our family histories, our lived experiences, and so much, and so on and so forth, attachment experiences, as it were. There's no clear definition of when someone is in a specific emotional state. While some theorists try to suggest that emotions are the same from culture to culture, recent neuropsychology shows that's not the case. What, If you look at fMRI scans, what some people interpret as sadness, other people might interpret as distrust and so forth. It's not important to ever get caught up labeling what emotion a person is in. Because again, what for you constitutes uh, frustration might in another person be interpreted or felt as 
disinterest or dismissiveness. It's just important to get to know the affects, the feelings, most importantly, the feelings and impulses that another human being is feeling rather than, and their thoughts, rather than getting caught up with labeling and emotion. So that said, both affects and emotions have real adaptive purposes. Anger, for example, is a biologically, I mean, to a degree, the feelings and impulses and arousal, and it is instilled to push away someone who's being transgressive or abusive. Fear impulses help us escape threats. Uh, grief is how our right hemispheres accept loss and let go of attachments and signal distress to others. Pride is what we feel when we undertake a pro-tribal action that benefits our affiliations with others. And uh, I guess shame are acts that are the opposite of pride. They threaten our tribal bonds and they threaten tribal coherence. So all of these uh, emotions, for lack of better words, fluidly shift. They don't fall into very rigid categories and we're never purely in one or the other. We're constantly moving as we process difficult events. But one important thing to know is that when people have secure childhood attachment bonds with caregivers that are reliable, emotionally attuned, uh, appreciative, and um, soothing, then we as children develop an ability to easily feel and express and know what our internal experience is and to disclose it to others. But if we have insecure early bonds, those initial impulses, which are natural, those affects and eventually emotional states, may be ignored by parents. Parents sometimes ignore a child when the child is throwing a fit, or they'll shame a child for being aggressive, or they'll punish a child for uh, throwing a tantrum. And so natural emotional impulses are um, not integrated into one's self-structure, which means there's a felt need to get rid of, either suppress the emotion that the parents can't cope with or replace the affect, an emotion that the parent can't tolerate very well. For example, while it's not a hard and fast rule, in our culture, young boys are very often shamed by peers and caregivers and uh, other adults for expressing fear uh, or sadness, especially their peers will shame them, I can assure you, as a someone who once was a young boy. And on the other hand, young girls sometimes, not always, but sometimes can be shamed for expressing decisiveness or anger and rewarded 
for other behaviors like consensus building, whereas boys are rewarded sometimes for aggression or being decisive, regardless of what everybody else thinks. So unfortunately, the result is that people, when natural initial primary emotions are shamed or rejected by peers or caregivers or other adults, we either suppress those emotions or we replace them with what's called secondary emotions. Primary emotions are the things we naturally felt as a child before any negative experiences, and they're natural and they're adaptive. But secondary emotions are reactions to our emotions. They're not uh, inevitable. They're things we're trained or socialized into exhibiting. And the problem is, is that secondary emotions, while they look good to other people, for instance, the young girl who shamed for expressing anger and thus develops a caregiving or a pleasant people-pleasing demeanor, she might be rewarded for those performative states, but they're not adaptive. Someone who's always people-pleasing when they're being abused or mistreated is not going to wind up happy or particularly empowered. Likewise, young boys who are socialized not to express sadness, but to express anger or um, decisiveness instead, when they go through emotional breakups, if they always feel anger, then they never process their emotional wounds. And what happens is these men, for example, who fail to, who always block their sadness with anger or dismissiveness or being aloof or pretending like nothing happened, that's called denial. Um, when people block uh, a natural initial primary emotion with a secondary emotion that's performative that other people prefer, what happens in that case is men wind up never fully processing, for instance, relational traumas, and they wind up jealous and distrusting in relationships as a result. So primary impulses that aren't integrated into our self-experience that are continuously suppressed or replaced with secondary emotions create a lot of havoc. And that's just the beginning. Um, if we block our primary core affects, our desire to flee when we're feeling scared, if we block that, or if we block our desire to connect because we've been hurt in the past. And so we want to just seem aloof and cool. What will happen is the initial natural emotion when we start to experience it will create anxiety. Anything we suppress when it starts to return as every psychologist from Freud to Bowlby to Carl Rogers has shown, creates anxiety. So every time we suppress a part of ourself, when we start to feel it, 
anxiety is the inevitable result. And when we're anxious, what happens is it's because some feeling in us that was shamed or rejected in childhood starts to be experienced. But interestingly, the mind becomes hypervigilant and believes the threat is coming from outside, not from inside. We don't know that it's a feeling that we're scared of, like fear or anger or sadness or loneliness or boredom. So we think, why am I this anxious? It must be something in the world around me that's, and we'll look for things to be frightened about. So in that way, individuals who block primary emotions wind up susceptible to ongoing anxiety disorders. And there's more. When we suppress and replace our natural primary emotions, rather than feeling and processing with others, we fall into maladaptive defense mechanisms, as many call it. For example, if somebody's at a workplace and their boss is screaming at them all day long and they can't push back, tell the boss that they're being ridiculous, unskillful, stand up for themselves, then that individual, of course, through what's called displacement, might go home and might take it out on their children or their wife or their dog. On the other hand, if people continuously suppress parts of themselves, they'll project those blocked parts onto others. So, for example, men who are struggling with their homosexuality due to homophobic cultures who suppress those desires start to see or believe that every man around them is making overt passes at them because their, their same-sex desires has been suppressed and then projected onto others. And of course, the worst is denial. Whatever emotions we deny, we deny means we never get over the traumatic or wounding experience. Um, healing demands that we integrate the feelings by connecting with others, disclosing and feeling in the body. Anything that interrupts that process leads to uh, dysfunction and anxiety down the road. So just going to see where my notes are. I've been doing this off the top of my head. Uh, here we go. Um, when we are with people who express difficult feelings that are primary and natural, because we too have been trained and socialized to cheer people up, to make them feel better, we can only make this process worse. The desire to always be reassuring, always try to fix another person's problems, always try to reason or logic with people, if that's our sole strategy, what it does is it teaches other people that it's not safe for them to disclose their sadness, their anger, their frustration, their loneliness. If we simply say, yeah, you've got, you, there's nothing to be frightened of. It's going to be fine. 
what we're saying to them not is really anything reassuring. Nobody ever feels better from that. What they really hear is, I don't want to be with your sadness or fear. I want you to just look on the bright side and I want you to repress these inevitable feelings. Now, it's an it's understandable that people do this, not just because we're socialized, but also because we have a fear of emotion contagion. Emotion contagion is the fact that human beings are mimetic, mimetic species. We naturally imitate other people's affects. If some if we're around a group of people that are anxious, tapping their feet, talking fast, then we'll start to tap our feet, talk fast. If we're in a room with people who are tired and exhausted, yawning, then we'll pretty soon pick up the same physiological state. Because we're aware of how much other people's emotions can influence our emotions, we tend to feel this great need to keep people happy, upbeat, positive, not too, not too frightened or upset because we're worried that we'll wind up feeling those negative affects as well. This results in us constantly trying to fix and solve the issues associated with other people's emotions, rather than simply creating a safe container for those emotions. And as a result, uh, constantly trying to fix, solve, pick people up, cheer them up, or be ever so logical when faced with what feels like overwhelming uh, or challenging fear will wind up unfortunately sounding patronizing, judgmental, and even dismissive. As excessive attempts to regulate other people's emotions fail because we don't create a safe space first and foremost for them to feel, disclose, and be with those emotions. In many ways, we can recreate the same attachment disturbances that individual experienced in childhood. If we always try to fix, solve, rationalize, or uh, be reasonable rather than just listen, and be a witness for other people's affective states. Interestingly, not only will people constantly try to uh, artificially upregulate negative emotions, but sometimes people will try to make others feel worse if we feel their emotions are wrong. Parents very often make children feel shame when they act aggressive to siblings, even though aggression is in many ways a very, is, I mean, really a natural, it's probably the, one of the very first impulses uh, along with clinging for attachment that the human brain experiences. Debt collectors actually try to make people who owe money for entirely innocent reasons they try to make people feel bad and terrify them into paying arrears. In any event, shaming brutalizes another human being's self-esteem and ability to bond. 
and is never a skillful uh, answer to any interpersonal experience. Rather than trying to immediately <coughs> fix or cheer up, the path forward for helping friends and the core of my work in counseling is to first listen closely more to the nonverbal cues than we might normally do. Most of the time when people are speaking, we try to visualize in our heads the events that they're disclosing. And while we do that, we don't see the, all the nonverbal cues that their right brain is unconsciously sending. The tone of voice, their facial expression, their gestures. And seeing the nonverbal component is far more essential than only paying attention to a story and trying to follow along with a story and see if a story can be fixed or solved. Simply listening closely and seeing are the facial expressions matching the story. Sometimes people in a very flat tone of voice will relate really, really painful events. And so they're emotionally blunting or overly repressing their own natural affects. And we can see that when we hear a story that is upsetting, but someone's facial cues, tone of voice, gestures are very placid or uh, in no way expressive. Another key to providing support is to feel into our own bodies mindfully while we listen and pay attention. It's very possible to do all of these at the same time. I do it as my life's work. I meet with people. I listen to the stories they relate. I pay attention to the level of arousal and the affect that they're displaying. And then I check with my own internal experience. And sometimes when people are blocking or are expressing something that's performative, that's not natural or innate, everything will feel off. I'll start to feel different emotions than what they're expressing. We'll talk about that in a second. But the key when we're working with someone who's in a state of uh, emotional duress due to challenging life experiences is one to listen closely, pay attention to all the cues, and ask ourselves, is this person really displaying too much affect or just what feels like the right amount? Or is it are they blocking? Are they cut off from their own feelings? Most of us are very good by the time we're adults at trying to cheer people up or soothe them down, but we're not so good at helping other people connect and feel emotions that other people have shamed. And sometimes it's the best thing we can do for a friend is give them permission to feel really sad or frightened or disappointed. If the emotional state uh, feels appropriate to the experience or inappropriate, 
So in many ways, I'm asking myself, am, is my job to help people feel the feelings that they're frightened of? Or is it to regulate, you know, uh, something that they are, that is natural, but is, is just exploding out of them? I never go in with an agenda to just try to help people by fixing or solving. I'm always going in with agenda of really listening and really trying to discern what emotional events are happening in their lives rather than so much what uh, drama dramas are going on. Now, I mentioned that sometimes I'll feel feelings that other people are blocking. That's actually called, if you know anything about uh, old psychoanalysis, that's known as counter-transference. Basically, a person who's listening, their emotions are influenced not just by the emotions that someone's expressing, but very often their emotions are actually influenced by emotions that someone else has blocked. And we'll start to feel something that the other person hasn't allowed themselves to feel. For example, there's been many, many times over the 15 years of counseling where I've heard people talk about relationships where they've been uh, mistreated or abandoned or just relationships that aren't working. And while they'll constantly talk and try to sound Buddhisty by talking about forgiveness or about uh, um, talk about maybe there's some behavior that they haven't tried or way of looking at it that will give them greater acceptance. But very often I'll start to feel an emotion that they've blocked. Sometimes I'll start to feel angry. Sometimes I'll start to feel sad when another person hasn't expressed either anger or sadness. Now, originally in psychoanalysis, countertransference, the therapist feeling an emotion of another person was considered to be bad. But fortunately, over the 100 years, 120 years since the formation and the uh, where Freud outlined counter-transference, uh, counter people have learned to actually understand that very often these feelings are important. They can actually give us a real sense of what is someone's disconnected or compartmentalized, and they can be a real breakthrough if we express it. Sometimes the very gentle... Um, it's interesting while I'm listening to you and you're talking about uh, trying again with this romantic partner, I'm feeling a sense of anger that I don't hear in your voice or in your, in your, uh, your facial expressions or anywhere. And I wonder if you've allowed yourself to feel anger or if does that feel like there's something to it and more often than not uh, someone will stop and realize that they've cut off a very vital adaptive part of themselves 
Now, of course, if we make someone's experience about ourselves, if we disclose and start talking endlessly about events in our life or all the feelings that we believe another person should have, that's not helpful. But being aware of what we're experiencing as we listen and disclosing it in a very, very open, non-pushy way as a possibility can be a real uh, beneficial practice when we're with someone who's, uh, rather than trying to fix their problems or solve their issues or cheer them up, can be far more beneficial. So a healthy form of compartmentalization is when we know and are aware that an emotion we're feeling is not our own, but is caused by someone else. And we can disclose it in a very gentle way and ask, is that present for them? It's unhealthy when we're unaware of how much our emotions are influenced by others. Now, there are many, many ways to both help individuals feel more feel the feelings that they're frightened of. And there's many ways to help reassure and soothe people who are in very much connecting with primary emotions, but because those emotions maybe have been suppressed for so long, they're coming out in a very dysfunctional way. One way when we're trying to help people connect with other feelings is to encourage them to pay attention to their body as they recite, again, the story of something scary, frustrating, disappointing that's happened in their life. And really point to when you talk about this, what is happening, especially in the front of your body where the vagal nerve is and where emotions are expressed. Sometimes I'll encourage people to recall previous events in their life or situations where they had strong emotions that I feel aren't being felt in a specific instance. If somebody's blocking their fear after something frightening is happening in their life, I'll see skillfully if I can bring up other events associated with a sense of alarm and see if that person can really become aware of what fear is like in their body so that they'll learn to become more um, emotionally aware. Now, this is probably something that you won't do as a friend, but very often in the therapeutic realm will have a client speak in emotionally charged phrases if we feel that they've been blocking. So we might even say, can you tell me that you're feeling hurt, that you're feeling abandoned, that you're feeling not seen? And when people speak those very resonant emotional phrases aloud, it actually begins to trigger the underlying feelings that have been cut off for so long. And in somatic um, 
therapies, modalities, and the work I do sometimes will even have people mimic an emotion that they haven't been able to express. For instance, encouraging them to speak loud and in an angry voice, to even shake their fist so that they can begin to uncover a primary emotion that's been blocked for most of our lives. Now, if we're really sure that someone uh, is connected with a primary natural emotion that feels appropriate to us, ways we can reassure them is reminding them of their own resilience, asking them to talk about different experiences in the past where they, through their own perseverance, their own friendships, their own resources, managed to survive and even grow from. We might call attention to the resources that are present and have, have them visualize all the people in their life that really care or are available for support. We might have them visualize a time in the future where the present issues have been resolved as all issues eventually, or most issues generally will pass. Sometimes therapists will even have people write a gratitude list so that they can really help reorient that person's attentional faculties to what's available for them. And finally, the Buddha had so many resources that help us be there for other people while taking care of ourselves so that we don't wind up through emotion contagion catching someone else's suffering or distress. Just as mindful awareness of our breath, our bodies, <clears throat> our feelings can help us see if we're feeling something that hasn't been disclosed or help us experience empathy for someone's emotions. But it also can help prevent emotion contagion. When I'm aware of my breath, my body, as I listen, if I notice that my body is becoming overly activated, my stomach becomes very tight or my breath starts to get cut off, then what I'll do is I'll soothe. I'll spend a little time while I'm listening, softening my belly, extending the length of my out-breath. If your body is relaxed, it's all but impossible to experience emotion contagion. That's the key. If even when I'm with the most, uh, someone who's in a great deal of emotional pain, I can still empathize. But if I'm starting to feel that pain begin to cloud my own perceptions of the world, I'll breathe slower, I'll soften my belly, I'll pull my shoulders back and up, I'll look up, I'll get out of the body associated with sadness. Lastly, when, because when the sensations, by the way, are softer, they don't take us over. If our body's relaxed, 
no one else's emotion can overwhelm us. Finally, the Buddha taught that if we're only driven by compassion and care for others, but we don't have boundaries, or what he called um, uh, equanimity, um, without boundaries, almost inevitably enmeshment or suffering or frustration will happen. Because no matter how much we want to help others, individuals sometimes have just too long a history of not processing traumatic events or uh, being dismissive with their own emotions or uh, too many too many histories of trauma for us to do or be fully alleviating just by offering them presence and compassion. So equanimity is always practicing the recognition that ultimately we cannot, as the Buddha said, ever fully save or completely uh, transform another human being. Equanimity is summarized in the practice, all beings are owners and heirs to their actions. And when we know this and repeat it as part of the daily re reflections, then we're constantly reminded that there are so many cases of people where we're just going to be slightly alleviating, but ultimately all of the healing is going to be the results of their actions, not ours. So I think that's all right now that my voice is going to allow. So I'm going to lead us on a meditation and then with some water, I'll recover for answering questions. So find a really comfortable seated position, or if you want, lie down in a recline in a bed or a couch. The Buddha said that, um, Lying down meditation is just as valid as sitting, standing, or walking. There's no wrong meditation pose. So what you're going to try to do for this one is we're going to first just try to cultivate uh, ease and internal a pleasant relationship with the body so that when we move into the mindfulness practice, uh, we'll already have a good relationship with our internal experience. So, closing the eyes and find the lowest sensations in your body, by which I mean the muscles and sensations in your feet and just squinch your toes and arch your feet and then relax. This is known as paired muscle relaxation. And it's really the best way to cultivate an easeful awareness of your internal experience. And so we're gonna move up the body 
Feel yourself tightening the muscles in your calves really tight. And then release. Just soften any holding there. And then tighten the muscles in your thighs. And then release. Clenching the buttocks. If you're sitting in a chair, it might slightly lift you up and then release and soften. And then see if you can imagine the breath filling up the belly to the point where the belly is a round balloon about to almost burst. And then as you breathe out, soften the belly. And then repeat that exercise with the chest, pulling in the breath, expanding the chest, creating a big superhero-like chest. And then as you breathe out, release any tightness and just allow the belly and the chest to be pliant, not constricted or tight in any way. Continuing up with the shoulders, lifting them up towards the ears and then releasing, rotating them back if that's helpful. That opens up the chest. And tighten the muscles in the forearms from the armpits down to the elbows, and then release. And then tighten the muscles of both the arms, the lower arms and the hands, make fists and clench, and then release, and just soften the hands, and just allow the hands to relax, the fingers to find the most comfortable position. And then continuing with the muscles in the back or the front of the neck, tightening and releasing. And then finally, of course, the muscles of the face, clenching the jaw, squinching the nose, tightening the micro muscles around the eyes, making a really squinched face, the forehead furrowed and then release. And imagine a warm hand of a loving presence, softening, releasing all of the muscles in your face, the eyes settling behind the eyelids. And then bring your awareness now to any sensation in your body that feels particularly soothing and relaxing. It can be a soft belly rising with the inhalation and releasing with the exhalation, or the feeling of the breath entering the tip of the nose, 
It could be the feelings in the palms of your hands. It could be warmth around the eyes or in the forehead. Wherever you find the most pleasant sensation, with every inhalation you take, try to slightly spread that comfort or ease slightly through your body. And as you release the exhalation, just soften and bring awareness once again to that area and see if you can allow it to settle. The Buddha's instructions spreading sukha or pleasure through the body was the foundation of his great insights, but also his greatest experiences of tranquility. Now, if any of these practices are difficult, no worries. Simply listen to the sounds in your environment, not visualizing what creates the sounds. Just listen to the sounds of cars or people talking or elements of the area you're in, wind or rain. And just listen to all the sounds as a symphony composed by not by humans, but just by the world itself. And just soften, release into whatever is supporting your body. And we're just going to sit here for a little while, just reconnecting with fully landing in our life, connecting with the body or the sounds around us, the breath. And whenever your mind wanders to a thought, without any frustration, disappointment, to see if you can bring your awareness back to whatever we were focusing on before the thought lured us away. Every time that happens, it's an opportunity to embed neural circuits in the brain that in the future when we're trapped with intrusive thoughts, painful fears, disturbing memories, we'll have the ability to disconnect and return to what's real and present.
now at this point we're going to practice mindfulness as part of a being a supportive friend for someone who's in some degree of emotional pain or distress. If it's at all possible, search your memory for someone who has recently gone through a painful period, whether it's really associated with truly difficult experiences or if to some degree you just associate this person with habitual motion dysregulation. Just visualize them. Imagine them expressing the story or the events. Hopefully you're not working with something too traumatic, but or just see an image of their face. And while you do that, pay attention not just to the visual cues, but see if you can also pay attention to what happens in your body while you're around someone who's anxious, depressed, lonely, frightened, angry. See if you can first soothe the body so that it doesn't become too tight. And then while you hold the image of someone experiencing an emotional state, see if you can find in your body how your affect, your internal experience naturally mimics and helps you experience empathy. I'm visualizing someone who I connected with who was quite upset about a struggle in their relationship and I can feel behind my eyes and also in my chest some of the feelings of sadness and fear about losing an attachment figure. And being aware allows me to empathize and support this friend as I have. Find where their 
experience most resonates and just create a safe space for it. Don't let it become too painful. Soften, breathe slowly if that's starting to be the case. But just be able to hold the sensations that let us know if someone is what someone else is feeling, whether the feelings feel right. or whether you feel there's something else there that they're not aware of. This is the Buddha's practice of compassion, being willing to feel what another is feeling. And finally, let's conclude with uh, phrases of the Brahma Viharas. May all beings be happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering. Live with ease. And may all beings be aware that they are the owners and heirs of their actions so that they may live with grace and clarity and rely on true wise friendships in times of need. So at this point, I'm going to ring the bowl and just allow yourself to take as much time as you need to begin to be aware of the world around you, and trying to maintain some of that mindful awareness of your body. Mindfulness is a practice we can bring with us throughout our lives, helping us know what our adaptive emotional responses are helping us connect with others.